The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask a few of our favourite writers from the magazine to read their piece aloud. On this episode, Lara Prendergast asks if it's so wrong to talk about whether the Covid vaccine affects periods after 30,000 British women reported changes to their cycle. Cindy Yu says China's zero Covid strategy can't last, there's been a fresh outbreak there, the vaccine rollout is slow and its quarantine policy is as strict as ever. And finally, with a sachet of Vaseline, half a tonne of Epsom salts and an open mind, Gus Carter heads into a sensory deprivation tank. First up, Lara Prendergast. It's fashionable to talk about periods. Books on the subject with glossy red and pink covers are bestsellers. They have sassy titles like Period Power, a manifesto for the menstrual movement, and Period, 12 Voices Tell the Bloody Truth. The Periodical is a podcast for everyone who bleeds and their friends. And this being our ultra-capitalist world, you can obviously buy a t-shirt, notebook or phone cover with a period-related slogan slapped across it. Anything you can do, I can do bleeding, is one mantra. I admit to having not engaged much with this world. My period has always seemed to me a private matter, of no interest to anybody else, and only vague interest to myself. I feel a little uncomfortable bringing the subject to the pages of The Spectator. I do so because I was interested to read that British women have made 30,304 reports of changes to their periods after having received a Covid vaccine. I realised I am one of them. I will spare the details, but suffice to say that after I had my first jab of Pfizer in late May, my cycle was flung off course. I did consider reporting it to the MHRA's yellow card scheme, through which people can voluntarily report any suspected side effect from the jabs, but confess I felt silly to worry. It wasn't exactly a blood clot or a heart murmur. When I had my second dose, the man in the booth asked whether I had experienced any side effects. I mentioned the changes to my period. He logged it on my file, said it would be flagged to the MHRA scheme, and a minute later a doctor rushed in to reassure me there was no reason to be concerned that the Covid jab would affect my fertility. I hadn't asked if there was. I wanted to ask how he could be so certain, given these vaccines are very new. But I was concerned that would make me sound loopy. Goody two jabs that I am, I didn't want a black mark next to my NHS number. So instead we moved the discussion on, landing on London's best pasta restaurants. Trillo is lovely, I said to the two men. Do you know it? A minute later, I'd had my second jab, and after the obligatory 15-minute please-don't-faint wait, headed back across Westminster Bridge to the Spectator office. Millions of British women have been jabbed, so 30,304 reports will be a tiny proportion, a negligible number, you might say. But it doesn't seem negligible if you're one of these women. I imagine many will keep a record of their cycle, perhaps in their diary or on an app, and will have noticed a change. In the US, one research survey tracking menstrual changes brought on by the COVID jabs received 140,000 responses. The two biological anthropologists conducting the research said they had expected to receive around 500 when they launched their survey. 
The real number of cases in the UK is possibly quite a bit higher than 30,304. But it is awkward talking about what the jab has done to our periods. Friends tell me they've also been affected and, nope, they didn't report it either. Nobody wants to be thought of as hysterical, emotional, a tad neurotic. So instead, these conversations are going on discreetly, on WhatsApp chats, on internet threads, in hushed tones. Who wants to be accused of being a dreaded anti-vaxxer? Is it anti-vax to be concerned that these jabs may be having an effect on our menstrual cycles? I messaged a doctor friend who specialises in women's health to ask if it's normal for vaccines to affect periods in such a way. Not really, she replies. I note that women aged 16 to 29 are one of the groups most likely to refuse the jab. I do not find this statistic hugely surprising. It does not seem surprising either that pregnant women are nervous about having the vaccine, despite the Royal College of Midwives and the Prime Minister's pregnant wife, Carrie Johnson, suggesting there is nothing to worry about. Just had my second jab and feeling great, she wrote on her personal Instagram page. If you vaccinate an entire population, even rare side effects will add up to thousands of people. Is it so wrong to talk about this? And if the jabs are affecting so many women's periods, who knows what else might be going on? Medical trials on pregnant women were banned following the thalidomide scandal of the 1960s. I suppose we can only hope and trust that Carrie and the midwives are right to advise all pregnant women that the risks of COVID are noticeably greater than the risks of the vaccine. In another survey run by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists in May, just under 60% of pregnant women said they had declined the vaccine. They may not have been hugely reassured by the RCOG's own literature on the subject. The official information sheet offers pregnant women two options, get a COVID-19 vaccine or wait for more information about the vaccine in pregnancy. Pregnant women do not have oodles of time to wait and see how everything pans out. They could also be forgiven for thinking they're being somewhat strong-armed into taking the jab, given how keen the government is on pushing through vaccine documentation for the double jabbed. But as the RCOG seems to admit, we could do with a bit more evidence on the vaccine and pregnancy. Back to fertility. Dr Edward Morris, the RCOG president, has reassured women that there is no biologically plausible mechanism by which current vaccines would cause any impact on women's fertility. While I am comforted by that, it is also the case that women associate their periods with their fertility, and there is reason to believe that the COVID jabs are having an effect on some women's periods. A month after my second jab, I make a note that my latest cycle is messed up once again. That was Lara Prendergast. Now, Cindy Yu. In January, my 80-year-old grandmother had a large birthday party in her home city of Nanjing. For the British branch of her family, stuck in lockdown, it was surreal to see photos and videos of what can only be described as a banquet. A hundred people hugging, drinking, laughing. It was as if Covid didn't exist. Normal life seemed to have returned to China, while in England even outdoor dining was a fantasy. Seven months on, the British are the ones ditching masks, hugging friends and heading to the beach, while the Chinese face what state media has called the most serious domestic recurrence of the virus since the start of the pandemic. The fresh outbreak started in Nanjing, which the rest of China now views with the same mix of sympathy and disdain it once did Wuhan. Masks, health codes and mass testing are back. No more parties. My grandmother stays at home every day, WeChatting her siblings in the nearby city of Yangzhou, also badly hit. 13 provinces across the country have recorded new cases of COVID. 
An annual international film festival in Beijing is one of many mass events that have been cancelled. Air China bookings are down 25% in a month. In Zhengzhou, which was hit recently by flash floods and now by COVID, contract workers who have lost their gigs have been seen sleeping on the streets. The national case numbers are very low by British standards, just under 2,000 active cases across the whole country, compared with our 30,000 a day. Like Australia and New Zealand, China is pursuing a zero-COVID strategy. Its border policy is ludicrously strict, requiring up to four weeks of hotel quarantine. It's no wonder then that international flight arrivals are still 95% lower than before the pandemic. The quarantine effectively shuts out casual tourists and the homesick diaspora. It's been two years since I've seen my family in China. The Chinese media often likes to portray the Western approach of learning to live with the virus as reckless or an admission of defeat. Last week, the state epidemiologist Zhang Wenhong dared to suggest that China will eventually have to coexist with COVID. His university is now investigating his doctoral thesis over allegations of plagiarism which were dug up in an online witch hunt. Last summer, it looked as if China's zero-COVID policy had led to a swift return to normality, with only officially 5,669 deaths across the whole country since the start of the pandemic. But today, as most Western countries vaccinate their way out of the pandemic, China's leaders have boxed the country in. How long can this go on? The border policy, effective at first, was always supposed to be temporary. Vaccination is the only way out. But China has fallen behind in the race to immunity. To fully vaccinate its population, China would need an astronomical 3 billion jabs plus boosters. By comparison, the UK's much-lauded rollout has given out 88 million. On the face of it, Beijing appears to be doing well. It's given out 1.8 billion doses, almost half of the world's total so far. Yet it's not enough. All those jabs have been made in China. No foreign vaccines have yet been approved for use, which creates its own problems. We now know that Sinovac is essentially ineffective until two weeks after the second dose. By comparison, Pfizer offers 85% protection after the first jab and AstraZeneca 76%. Peer-reviewed data for the other jabs, including Sinopharm's two vaccines, are hard to come by. Countries like Chile have found out that Sinovac does not stop huge COVID waves. Other recipients of Chinese vaccines, like Thailand and the UAE, are now offering AstraZeneca or Pfizer booster jabs to those who had a Chinese-made first dose. It doesn't bode well for overall Chinese immunity. Regulators are now looking at approval for Pfizer booster shots, but China only has 100 million doses of the American vaccine. Beijing wants the rollout to be voluntary. Some local authorities have bribed people to get jabs with iPhone lottery draws, toiletries and even boxes of eggs. The central government has so far rejected vaccine passports. Vaccine coverage is therefore patchy. Whereas 38 million doses have been administered in Beijing, almost enough for everyone in the city to be double jabbed, in economic and political backwaters like Ningxia, population 7 million, and Gansu, population 26 million, only enough doses have been distributed to double jab at most a fifth of the population. My home province of Jiangsu, population 80 million, doesn't release its vaccination figures. Though there is no age breakdown of national vaccination numbers, we can guess that the most vulnerable are not the most protected. China has chosen not to vaccinate by age and instead made vaccination available to 18 to 59-year-olds all at once. Regulators initially said they needed more time to determine the safety of the Chinese vaccines for the old and vulnerable. The rollout has since opened up to include the elderly, but when my grandmother tried to get her first jab this month, she found that first doses had been paused during the new outbreak. Vaccinations have now resumed, 
but this time children as young as 12 are eligible, which means my grandmother may end up getting her vaccine later than a teenager who is more than a thousand times less likely to die from COVID. I can't help but wonder if it was the right decision to send her back to China in April last year. If she had stayed with us in the UK, she'd have had her vaccine on the NHS long ago. I now doubt I'll be able to see her by her 81st birthday, or even her 82nd. 2022 is a big year for the Chinese Communist Party. Beijing hosts the Winter Olympics in February, while President Xi marks his first decade in power in October. The reaction to the Nanjing outbreak shows that the government will not tolerate even a handful of cases, and certainly not next year of all years. At least 39 officials have been censured, sacked or placed under police investigation. Those who want to boycott the Winter Olympics may well be disappointed to find that the CCP takes the act of protest out of their hands by not allowing foreign spectators at the event anyway. Back in March, Chris Whitty said that, in Britain, a new wave of Covid would meet a war of vaccinated people. In China, the war is still far from finished. That was Cindy Yu. And finally, Gus Carter. Hidden below St George's Wharf in Vauxhall, down the road from a now defunct gay sauna, is Floatworks, a wellness centre that offers flotation therapy. Sensory deprivation tanks can be found in most British cities, in bohemian towns like Bristol and Brighton, but also in places like Birmingham and Belfast. The concept is simple enough. People are locked in an unlit pod and lie there with nothing but their own thoughts. Some report hallucinations. Others, a deep sense of calm. Wally Funk, the 82-year-old who was blasted into low Earth orbit last month aboard Jeff Bezos's private rocket, endured 10 hours of sensory deprivation when she trained as an astronaut. 10 hours seemed a dangerously long time, so instead I booked a measly 60-minute session and cycled over after work. The tank itself looked like a windowless prototype for a self-driving hatchback. You've got your earplugs and your Vaseline, said the attendant, gesturing towards a bamboo bowl that held a little sachet of white petrolatum. No other explanation was provided. My mind darted back to the gay sauna. The promotional photos showed floaters wearing swimming costumes, but the online community insists that birthday suit is the only appropriate dress code, which makes a sort of sense given how fetal the setup feels. And there's something quietly disconcerting about the mix of whale music pumped into the pod and the vaguely medical scent of the flotation solution, made up of, among other things, half a tonne of Epsom salts. The liquid was just over a foot deep and heated to what I assumed is body temperature. It's also toxic. Hanging on one of the hydraulic arms was a bottle of water used to spray your face in case any of the fluid goes near your eyes or mouth. With the lid shut and only an electric blue light for company, it became obvious what the Vaseline was for. The various nicks and grazes that one naturally acquires as a spectator journalist began to itch ferociously. Never mind, I thought, there's no turning back now. Out went the light, and slowly too did the best of Brian Eno. The chamber was just about large enough to stretch out my arms and legs, which was just as well. Moving my limbs was about the only form of entertainment. Occasionally a shimmer of something passed across my eyes. Hallucinations, but nothing revelatory. Then, from beneath me, I heard a low rumble. Just the muffled clatter of the Victoria line. 
Once recognised, it proved a comforting sound. Then, all of a sudden, the ambient music started up again. I was sure it had only been a couple of minutes, but the thought that someone might barge into the little room and discover me, zonked and naked, was enough to reanimate my slippery limbs. I hopped out. Exactly 60 minutes had passed. So, I emerged with a feeling of almost artificial serenity, as if someone had dialed down the radio in my brain. Out I went into the Vauxhall evening to join my fellow Earthlings. That was Gus Carter, and that's it for this week's episode. Thanks very much for listening to Spectator Out Loud, and join us again next week. <laughs>